Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of Polity Research's podcast, The Polling Station. My name is Ernie Pikopoulos, CEO of Polity, and I'll once again be your host today. Um, our topic today is uh, pretty topical, I guess, a topical topic, uh, dealing with the ongoing crisis in, in Ukraine. And specifically, we'll be discussing the impact of the uh, Russian invasion on democracy in Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe. And uh, today we have uh, with us a return guest. Uh, in fact, I think it's his third appearance, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think you're right. Podcast, which means you've been on 50% of them. <laughs> uh, and it is fellow pollster, David Williams. Welcome, David. Hey, hi, Ernie. How are you? I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Waiting for spring. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, we should mention, by the way, before we get started, that we're recording this on what, March 2nd, I believe, because of uh, the way this, uh, this crisis is rapidly evolving from day to day. Uh, you know, somebody watching this a month from now, I'd be thinking, boy, that was something pretty stupid that that person said in um, this podcast, but it was a month ago. Anyway, this is Dave Williams. He is, um, president of Williams and Associates, a polling firm based in Salem, Massachusetts. And I think Dave is the perfect guest for this topic as he has direct experience working in Ukraine. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, both in 1997 and 2012, roughly in those time that's, periods? That's correct. 96, sorry, that's when oh, I was 96. first there, 96. Okay. Um, so, okay, everybody knows I bring... Uh, in our tradition, I bring the uh, the Pete's decaf coffee to every podcast, which hasn't changed since episode one. I refuse to change. When I find something good, I stick with it. Uh, Dave, what are you bringing to the drinking party today? I'm actually bringing some tea today. I have some, uh, although it's afternoon, I had some English breakfast tea. And uh, I hope no one minds, but in solidarity for the Ukrainian people, Ooh. this is actually a mug from Bosnia and Herzegovina, but the colors are <laughs> right. So, yeah. uh, so solidarity to my, uh, to my friends in, uh, in Ukraine. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, where was that from Bosnia and Herzegovina? Bosnia and Herzegovina. See, what gives it away is the stars there. That's the Bosnian flag. Mm. So the colors are the same and, I tried to hide it, but if we go, you'll see. Yeah, uh, Bosnia. <laughs> hard to hide. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, that was the region that sparked World War One, correct? It was indeed. It was indeed. And uh, uh, the other mug I was going to bring, I thought I had a, a mug from Ukraine, but I was wrong. Uh, I have one from uh, from uh, this is cafe in Macedonia called the Joseph Braz Cafe, which of course was Tito's real name was Joseph Braz. So oh, I almost yeah. I almost did that one, but since the colors were were perfect for Bosnia and Ukraine, I figured I'd have that one. Yeah, yeah, good idea, good idea. Um, yeah, well, let's hope the Ukraine situation doesn't spark another world war as Bosnia Herzegovina did back then Indeed. in 1914 or whatever that was. Um, all right, let's let's get right to it. Um, I, I'm sure our guests are curious as to what kind of role you played in Ukraine during those two times you were there. I assume it's mostly political political consulting mm -hmm. polling. Yeah. But if you could go into a little more detail of uh, what exactly you were doing there. Sure. Well, the first time I went there uh, in '96 was uh, was through a USAID uh, 
uh, program. Uh, you know, the, I think we talked about this before that uh, USAID used to fund, uh, still does funds a, a lot of uh, a lot of democracy promotion programs in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, basically, c coming out of the Reagan years, the National Endowment for Democracy. So I was over there to do some training in a city that is south of uh, uh, Kiev, if you want to be politically correct. Yeah. Um, although most of us know it as Kiev, um, a, a city called Cherkasy. And uh, we went down there to do some training of, of some political party uh, folks there just on how to do polling. And when they first asked me if I would go there, I said, Jim, this should be easy. We'll just talk about random digit dialing and, you know, no. I'm spinning all this thing while I'm talking to them. They said, uh, slow your roll there, Ace. Uh, they don't have a lot of telephones there. So it's like, oh, okay. So we actually, I went down and, and we basically, I, I taught these folks, these party folks, uh, how, to, how to do a very simplistic um, uh, intercept sample, um, how to write a questionnaire, uh, how to do the coding. We were down there, I think, for three or four days, and we basically just went through the whole process and how what the importance of doing a, 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 a sample selection that is that is somewhat systematic um, or as systematic as you can get it, uh, how to write questions so that they're simple, how to code and key punch and, and then analyze the data afterwards. Mm -hmm. So we were down there for about for about three or four days. And this was literally 96. I mean, it's, it's a while after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, but things were still uh, very, um, uh, very Soviet there. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to stay in a hotel that uh, there were no there were no Western hotels there. There were none. Um, we stayed had to stay in a hotel called the Tourist Hotel, which uh, in the Soviet Union, practically everywhere. That's if you were from out of the country, that's where you had to stay. Um, a very uncomfortable, uh, no amenities whatsoever. I think there were like two hangers in the closet when you got there. And I had a friend who had been there earlier who uh, who got chased down the street because she mistakenly took one of the coat hangers. So that's, that's kind of how bad it was. And um, so I was in Kiev for you know a couple of days just to sort of get acclimated. And then we drove down to Cherkasy, which is this south, um, kind of south, a little bit east, but virtually south from Kiev, still on the Dnieper River. And as we're driving down, it's a city of 300,000 people. Hmm. And as we're driving down there, the, the, the guy who ran the program that, that uh, I, was, uh, I was there with said, uh, I just want to warn you that it's not unusual uh, for the hotel to run out of hot water occasionally during the day. It, it happens all the time. And, you know, it's very, very typical. So we get down there, city of 300,000 people now. And uh, we get there and find out this was in, uh, I think this is in October, uh, late October, maybe early November. Um, we get down there and it turns out that uh, not only does the hotel not have any hot water, but the entire city of 300,000 people <laughs> had no hot water because under the Soviet system, they had a central hot water facility mm. that they heated the water and then sent it through pipes underground and that was broken. So mm. they did not have individual water heaters in your apartment building or anything like that. Mm. So it was, as I said, it was, it was really, it was really kind of bleak, you know, uh, the, 
central and people will argue about this all the time but you know the central Euro european countries like uh, the balts the you know latvia lithuania and estonia yep. uh poland to some degree um czechoslovakia uh hungary is slovenia as you kind of move south um they um they they had kind of a, a notion of the western sort of uh, feeling the further you moved east, when you get into like Bulgaria and and eastern Romania, uh, Moldova, and other uh, other places, it really it really does become uh, a, a lot a lot darker. People yeah. were generally much more pessimistic. There was not a whole lot of cheer and color there, and uh, Ukraine was very much like that. Uh, they were they were not um, uh, no they were not uh, they, you know they were happy people, but uh, you know, if I can just another story, we we'd done these trainings and things were going fine. At the end of the training, we decided we'd go to this, uh, we'd take everybody out to dinner. There's probably about 16 people in our party. And uh, we went to this banquet hall and uh, there were literally, it's a fairly large banquet hall, probably holds about 500 people. Uh, there was a rock and roll band playing on the stage at an ex exceptionally loud volume. I mean, it was really, really loud. And uh, there were probably a total of about 20 people in there. And uh, aside from those working, and we were 16 of them. So <laughs> we're just around this 20 people, there's this band up on stage, they're playing all this sort of Western rock and roll. And, uh, you know, dinner was relatively meager, fair, some sliced meat and, you know, vegetables. And, uh, one of the guys that we were with, one of the Ukrainians said, they'll go get us some, uh, some vodka. So he went out and comes back and these brings back these nondescript bottles and, uh, you know, said, you want some? I said, sure. And they said, okay, well, let, uh, let Vadim try it first because sometimes it's, it's, sometimes they put stuff in this, you know, that's not quite all there. So I was like, okay, this guy just went out in the street and bought this vodka. So we're having a you know an enjoyable time in the music, doing a little dancing. You know, we're getting ready to to travel back to Kiev the following morning, and um, I had to go to the men's room. So I get up, and one of the Americans I was there with said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm going. I need to go to the men's room." He says, "Okay, well, I'm not going to tell you why, but just be careful when you go into the men's room." Hmm. I mean, okay, you know, that all about. Um, I get into the men's room and literally, I mean, the things that you hear, you know, the, they, they had like 20 watt light bulbs everywhere. So things were always very dark. I get into the men's room. There's like one light bulb working and I look over and, and someone had come in and stripped all the porcelain and all of the, all of the copper out of this function hall. So basically you had to do your business in a hole in the floor and it was a rather large hole. Yeah. So it so that's kind of what it was like in in '96. I thought you were going to tell me that there was a revolver taped underneath the, uh, the no the bag of one of those yeah, yeah quick reference yeah, for those was, of you who uh, know Godfather movies yes the Godfather <laughs> movies but it was it was really it was bleak it was bleak yeah so it was it was still mo as you say mostly a Soviet feel to the place even five years i think what 91 was the collapse of the yeah. Soviet union so we're talking five years afterward and it still yeah. felt like you were in a russian satellite state basically a absolutely absolutely i mean there was a lot more freedom 
Uh, you found people with, um, it was interesting because, uh, again, after one of the trainings, trainings we went to, there were young people, they were working with a, a youth group. Um, and we went to, uh, we went to the apartment, their parents were away. So we went to their apartment in this, in this, you know, block building, very nondescript. And again, you walk in and there's like 21 light bulbs in the, in the hallways. And I'm, you know, kind of looking, this is awful, you know, it's just, how do people live like this? And then you get inside and this is beautiful apartment, <laughs> a very nicely decorated. They had all this really nice furniture, you know, rugs, but the kids were there and they were playing that beautiful stereo, but they, they, they were playing the stereo at such a volume that it was distorting the music through the speakers. <laughs> so I was there for a while. I, you know, these were days when I would spend probably about, you know, easily eight hours, maybe 10 hours, just basically standing up and talking yeah. and then having to wait for someone to translate because English was not, uh, it was spoken, but it was not readily understood. So we had to have a translator do it, which is, is very sort of time consuming. So we're at this apartment and it's getting kind of late. I said, well, I'm, I'm just going to go back to the, to the, to the hotel and, and go to sleep because we got work tomorrow. And one of the guys came out with me, he said, let me walk you to the hotel because this, you know, it can be kind of dicey out in the streets for an individual walking alone. It's like pretty late too. It was probably after midnight. And, um, you know, we get outside the apartment. I go, geez, I had to get out of there. I mean, the music was, a, he goes, yeah, you have to understand is that these folks were not allowed to play music, this kind of music, period. Mm. So now that they can, they're allowed to do it, they don't care what it sounds like. They just want to play it as loud as they possibly can. <laughs> and this is sort of that reaction to it. Uh, you know, it was so clamped down that now you could just, you know, you could, you couldn't do anything, but you could do a lot of things you could not do before. Now in 96 though, had they, had they had elections? Was it democratized to the yeah. point where they actually had elections or was it, or yeah. coming in on the first phase or? Now they had had elections. There was a guy there. Uh, his name was Kuchmar uh, when when I was first there, and uh, like in many places, he was a um, uh, he was not a reformer. Mm -hmm. He was uh, you know the the old uh, communist hierarchy. Basically, they sort of semi reformed themselves and try and tried to brand themselves as a modern kind of Western social democratic party. But in a lot of places, the Bulgaria was the same way. They were they were basically uh, unrepentant uh, communists, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with a slightly better face put on them uh, to attract young people. So Kuchmar wasn't wasn't terrible. He wasn't he wasn't a horrible individual, but you know he was certainly not uh, not a reformist as uh, as as things went. Um, he, I think won election twice, ran for a third term, I think, if, if I remember correctly. And then the system changed quite dramatically. Uh, there was a, um, uh, as happens again, in a lot of these sort of post-Soviet uh, places where you get uh, uh, opposition parties or parties that had been in opposition coming together in coalition and being able to beat the old parties. Mm. Um, and so you had, uh, uh, Yushchenko, who uh, came in, was the president, and this woman, uh, Yulia Timoshenko, who almost everybody pretty much remembers her. I hmm. think she came in as the as the um, as the uh, uh, the prime minister. I'm pretty sure that's the way it went. 
and they represented two completely different parties. I mean, they were somewhat reformist parties, but uh, immediately as they got into, they started butting heads. Mm. So there was there was a split, and uh, uh, Yushchenko um, uh, wasn't able to survive. They didn't meet again. This is very typical of what happened in these in these post-communist countries. They weren't able to meet people's expectations, um, yeah. and so they were they generally lost. But they they sort of they also lost their cohesion. They couldn't keep their voters together because there was so much infighting. And then uh, this other guy came in, Yanukovych, who was there for a long time, who was basically, um, he was like Kuchmar. He was, uh, he was not a puppet of the Russians, but he was very uh, uh, sympathetic towards the, toward, he had a very, he had a much more uh, Russian outlook than mm. he did a Ukrainian outlook. Hmm. Uh, and so he was there for, 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 for a while and then got overthrown. Um, I think he was there for, for less than one term, but that's the second time I went, we actually, uh, got hired, uh, to go in and work directly with, um, with, uh, uh, Yushchenko, uh, hmm. to do, to do some work. He wanted to come back and he was the guy famously that the, that the Russians had, uh, had poisoned with yeah. Agent Orange. Yes. So um, so we were we were there on a on a mission to try and uh, rehabilitate. I almost hate using that word because it's an old Soviet word yeah. <laughs> to to kind of rehabilitate his his uh, his uh, uh, his reputation. And it was just it was just too far gone. So so this um, was 2012. You're talking about? Yeah, roughly. I think 2012 so was the second time I was that's there. That's a, a couple of years before. Um, I think in 2014 is when. Putin would say there was a there was a coup, right? Yes, the, he would term it a coup. Oh, right. I'm not sure what we would call it in the West, but where things changed dramatically, and mm-hmm. uh, the government took a much more Western-looking uh, approach, and there was discussion about joining NATO, which there still is now, which probably will never right. happen. But um, so you were you were there just before that whatever that 2014 shift was, could mm-hmm. you sense yep. that something was, was going uh, on or? Uh, yeah, because uh, the difference between Kiev in, in, uh, in at that point and Kiev in 1996 was like night and day. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of Western investment uh, in the, in Ukraine. Um, as happened, it was very predictable as you look in, in places, you know, there was a whole thing, uh, you know, 20 years ago about the Polish plumbers in, yeah. in England, you know, everyone yeah. was hiring Polish, there aren't any Polish plumbers in England any longer because the Polish economy race was, was coming up so quickly that plumbers could actually make a very good living <laughs> in Poland. So they didn't have to go. So you, you, you could see how the money kind of moved. Yeah. As these new, as these new countries kind of became westernized, the Slovakia, for example, uh, car manufacturers, uh, Volkswagen started to move into Slovakia. Mm. Mm. Um, and then as, as the Slovak economy improved and wages went up, they had to look for a new place to go. So there was a, this sort of flow of investment kind of going through. And um, Kiev was was just so much different. I mean, the Ukrainian people are very nice people anyway, but I mean, they were, they were much lighter. They were much more buoyant. Um, the city was, was much different. You could see the, the change in the investment, uh, that had gone on. There were hotels that you could stay at. There were uh, restaurants that you could go to. The, when I was there in 96, the only restaurant that did not serve Ukrainian food was a, me- a Mexican 
restaurant that didn't make very good Mexican food. <laughs> but uh, that was the only place you could go. There was there was there was literally nothing nothing else. You had to eat at the hotel or you had to um, you know eat at a local restaurant. Uh, and food was not very. I mean the the the, the quality of the food was not uh, was not that good in in ninety six. It completely changed. Uh, now in two thousand twelve. Was Zelensky on the uh, horizon, or was he on the scene at all, or still doing stand-up comedy? Um, uh, what's his name? Porzinski, I think, was the guy who came in right. and uh, and really started kind of moving things in, in, in a much more Western uh, point of view because they could see they could see the difference. I mean, you know, the Ukrainians and the Russians are very they're very they're they're the history of their two countries are intertwined over centuries. Right. And it wasn't until I think 1917 that, uh, that, uh, that the Ukraine actually carved itself out as a, as a territory, yeah. but it was always a client state of, I mean, the Poles had a controlled part of uh, the Western part of Ukraine. The Russians controlled the Eastern part of Ukraine for a long time until like 1917. And then, uh, uh, the the Republic of Ukraine as it as we know it today uh, or virtually know it today um, existed, but you know the Cossacks most of the you know this uh, everybody always looks at the you know the Russian Cossacks they're, they're yeah. historical but they came from 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 Ukraine oh really uh, there there is a, there's a Russian Cossack sect but uh, but uh, the Ukrainian Cossacks are really the uh, the ones that, uh, that sort of dominated. I, th I thought it was interesting that I guess it was what last Monday things moved so quickly, but I guess it was last Monday when Putin gave that hour and a half speech or whatever, which was basically a little history lesson going into some of the issues you're talking about now, mm -hmm. going all the way back to the to the Soviet revolution in 1917. And it was interesting to me because he was even talking about what the tension between Lenin and Stalin, that Lenin wanted a more decentralized, more autonomous group of client states. Whereas Stalin, of course, wanted the iron fist. Mm -hmm. um, and he was essentially blaming Lenin, I think, for, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for the troubles in, in 2022, that if only that Stalin had, uh, you know, if only they had reformer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was interesting that he felt the need to go into this long lecture on the historical evolution of the situation between Russia and Ukraine. It was fascinating, actually. Again, you know, one of the problems that the Russians are having at this point uh, is that if you look at at most of most of the countries, if you look at at, at Central and Eastern Europe, almost every country uh, had, for example, Macedonia. Uh, you know, again, whether you want to whether you, you can make the differential between Greek Macedonia and yeah, the Macedonian yeah. Macedonians, which of course right. they're constantly butting heads. Right. But uh, you know, Alexander. Uh, the Macedonians believed that they should, uh, you know, in their back of their minds, they believed they should inhabit all of the territory and control all the territory that uh, that Alexander conquered. Yep. You know, and the Bulgarians <laughs> said the same thing. The Bulgarians went from the Black Sea to the Adriatic. Yeah. Uh, the Serbs had a very large empire at one point in time, you know, and they all kind of, again, they re realistically, they know they won't, but kind of in the back of their heads, they think yes. we sh we deserve Yes, yes. yes. Well, first of all, uh, you just hit a sore spot because my Greek grandmother came from the Macedonian region and always 
you know, resented any kind of discussion about that. You know, it wasn't Greek territory, any part of it. But yeah, uh, but um, I, I hear what you're saying about that, that hearkening back to, you know, earlier days. And, and I think Putin's doing that in part. I mean, he's really seems to me he's trying to be another Peter the Great, you know, to kind of, mm-hmm. It's really not about communism or even about NATO or even about the West. It's about reinstating this mother Russia back to its original intentional borders. Yeah. And again, you know, Ukraine was always very important in that because Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, I I think. Yeah, to an extent, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think uh, I forget that it's something I probably don't have the exact number in my head, but I think forty percent production of uh, of wheat in in you know globally comes yeah. out of Ukraine, right? And so and I, so one thing that I remember driving this, I think it's they said I, I checked it out the other day. Google says it's like a three hour drive from Kiev to Cherkasy, this place I went to. I swear to God, it was five or six hours, <laughs> and the roads probably weren't as yeah. good as they are now, so. It's right. probably around four and a half or five hours, but you drive by these, you drive by these fields and they just, uh, they were just tilling the fields and the, the, literally the ground was a, the soil was a blue black. Jeez. It was so black. It was almost blue. And you look at it and you go, okay, well this, this looks like it's gotta be exceptionally fertile soil here. So yeah, you know it's it's just uh, so I it may be part of it is there you know the the Russians don't have a whole lot. I mean I wouldn't I I, I you know the common phrase that's going around is they're a, you know they're a gas station with nuclear warheads, which I think is a little dismissive. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a little bit more there, um, but certainly they don't have uh, an an extraordinarily diverse economy, and so bringing this back into it maybe maybe a part mm-hmm. of it. Uh, it, it could just be the imperial desires to go on, but I think I think it actually is more about money, because if you look at there's a map that's been circulating that you can find online of all the uh, of all the Russian uh, gas lines uh, into Europe, mm-hmm. and virtually every single one of them goes through Ukraine. Well, that brings me to another point I wanted to talk about um, energy, because I mm-hmm. think I, I agree with you. It's money and energy, I think, that are combining to explain a lot of this. But I love your quote. I think that was John McCain who said Russia's a gas station masquerading as a country. That was it. It was beautifully put, yes. It was great. Um, But yeah, I I tend to think, you know, and and also I was thinking about this. It it had something, I think, to do also these events to what we have been doing in the United States, what the Biden administration has been doing on mm-hmm. energy. I mean, mm-hmm. they shut down our pipelines, basically. They gave the go-ahead to the Nordstrom pipeline, mm-hmm. which allows Russia to then directly send their natural gas to, to Europe and avoid mm-hmm. the Ukraine. Because I think, mm-hmm. didn't they originally, the, the pipelines usually went through Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they, they have to pay fees to transmit that gas through Ukraine. Yep. So there's a financial cost for them to, to kind of put through it. So bypassing Ukraine is uh, is much more cost effective for the Russians. Right. So, you know, what we did by giving the green light to the Nordstrom pipeline, which I honestly don't understand. And now we've revoked it, of course. But <laughs> still doing that, I think, egged him on a little bit to take the action mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I forgot to mention, speaking of energy, 
Um, isn't Chernobyl just north of Kiev? It is indeed. Yes, yes. Um, Harkening back to those days. That's right. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. Well, I think, and I think this, I think you're right. I think there's a huge part of it that, uh, and again, it's all also, I think, been, um, you know, it, it historically, I remember I was a, a particular friend of mine worked at the State Department uh, for a while, and we were golfing down in D.C. one day. And this was about the time that uh, the Russians had uh, invaded Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, they still occupy a, a, a very significant piece of, of Georgia bordering on the uh, Russian border. Uh, this is in 2008. And, uh, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, why aren't why aren't we doing more to kind of push it back? And he said, well, basically, you know, again, he worked for the State Department, so he's a little a little circumspect in what he says. So the thing you have to understand is this: this is the way that we treated the the Russians ever since uh, 1945. Hmm. And I started thinking to myself, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you start looking back to it. Hmm. We really didn't push back when they went into Hungary in 56. Right. Didn't do anything when they went into Czechoslovakia in 68. Yep. Didn't do anything when they invaded Chechnya in uh, uh, Afghanistan. We did. There was a Jimmy Carter. We did boycott the Olympics. Okay, the Olympics. But, uh, yeah. you know, but beyond that, that was probably <laughs> the biggest thing we did. Nothing in Chechnya in, in 99. Um, we didn't do anything in in, in Georgia in 2008, and uh, we didn't do anything when they uh, invaded Kazakhstan in January. Right. So it's it's a very interesting, it's a, I don't know what this means, Ernie, yeah. but it's a very interesting dynamic that, you know, um, again, we do make our protestations, but we've never, we've never really pushed back hard. And I could see it more today than I could see it, say, in Hungary in 56. Right. Right, because the nuclear arsenals were not as, you know, scary. And exactly. But I, I think the thing that that really bothers me about this this part in Ukraine is that we sort of, um, you know, and again, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. And more than one administration bears responsibility for this, Definitely. by the way. So it's not just this current one. But uh, when the Soviet Union broke up, most, of the, uh, not most, but a lot of the nuclear warheads they had were in Ukraine because yes. Ukraine was back far enough from the front lines. So they weren't right on the front lines, but that was their line of defense. That's where most, again, most, a lot of their nuclear warheads were. And in the breakup of the Soviet Union, they got left there. And I'm sure, I know you know this, but you know we did make a promise to them that if you are willingly give up these nuclear warheads, yep. we will make sure that no one is, aggresses you from the East. And again, we that's another promise that is just gone has not been held yeah and there of course there are rumors that there are still some rogue nuclear weapons under the control of the ukrainians at this point possibly wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me and in and in at this day and age i say it's if they are it serves us right that they're there yeah um, hey, let me know. ask you this um you know, the, everybody's sort of been surprised, I think, I'm not really sure about this, but surprised at the level of resistance offered by the Ukrainians. Um, you know, and there's, there's, as you know, there are questions about, you know, was, was, was Putin sending in the raw troops who weren't really that prepared to do this? Did he think that it was going to be more, you know, more easily taken Kiev than, than it turned out to be? 
you know, my personal view is he's just sitting on the sidelines waiting to just crush them soon. But mm-hmm. um, did did the resistance surprise you or, or based on your experience there, did you see that kind of pride and, in, in, you know, in patriotism that they would come to the not just Zelensky, but just people yeah. on the street? Yeah. No, I mean, again, they see themselves as not, they're not Russians, we're Ukrainians. And so they they have this they have this sense this nationalistic sense of of who they are, uh, again despite the fact that they were you know kind of moving back and forth in a number of places, um, you know they're they're very proud of who they are they uh, uh, so I'm not surprised that they're fighting back uh, uh, you know I, I would probably agree with you that I think uh, 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 Putin's kind of waiting to to the point to see where it goes. Um, but given the fact that there was, I, it, but there could be a miscalculation on his part, given the fact that there was no uh, significant pushback in uh, when uh, Crimea went. Mm. And I think that, uh, you know, from the, from the, from the Ukrainians, and I, I think that's a completely different story because there's almost a little bit of rationale that Crimea traditionally has been, it was part of Russia and it was ceded over to the Ukrainians uh, not for any other reason except that uh, here you guys should have this. And so, yeah. actually, going going back, I uh, and, and and removing that, I can almost I can justify. I can't say it's right to do because obviously it was uh, it was uh, an agreed upon boundary line uh, yeah. at some point in time. So, um, but I, I think, and I'm I'm kind of surprised that I I did not figure that uh, that it, it, this would. Uh, he, that uh, Putin would try and and do this uh, invasion in the way that he did. I thought they were just kind of my own opinion, and where people were asking me, I thought he was just going to carve out a little bit more of the Donbas region. Yeah, yeah, just me to too. Take another little bite, and then maybe you know, take another little bite, and then maybe get in and kind of take control of uh, of the political process by just uh, occupying a little bit more of the country. And uh, and doing it politically as opposed to militarily, kind of surprised about that. Mm. And I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. I don't think anyone does, frankly. Yeah. I, and you know, like we could spend three podcasts trying to get into Putin's head, and I don't think we'd get very far. No, I don't um, think so. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, and he's also, I think, overestimated air superiority. I think the Russians thought that they would dominate the air, and they really haven't from my understanding of it anyway um yeah a lot of a lot of their planes have been shot down and helicopters and mm-hmm. yeah uh, i find it i find it fascinating that i mean again who knows you know what's what's going on but i i find it interesting that they don't seem for for a, a, a quote unquote modern army they don't seem to have the capability of uh fighting at night they don't mm. appear to have uh, night vision capabilities um, and again, you know that the I think the biggest gap, and there's a there's a famous story that uh, at, at the one of the Helsinki conferences that uh, when Reagan's leaving, uh, uh, the Soviet uh, I forget who it was he was negotiating with. I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was the president at the time. Uh, but anyway, uh, it might have been Gorbachev. They they had a they had a kind of informal meeting. And uh, this is when they were basically starting to give everything over. Uh, they said to him, you know, we just, we just realized when we couldn't compete with you and spending for, for military. Yeah. Uh, you know, your military spending is just, we can't keep up with, at that level. It's just, we don't have, we can't feed people and build 
all this machinery for war at the same time. But the second thing is, he goes, you know, you, 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 you've got kids who are in grade school who are uh, very savvy with computers. You know, mm. tiny children can sit there and they can play and, you know, they can do all this stuff. And because we have we have none of that. So, you know, it's, it's the other thing. If you get back to the you know, gas station posing as a country, it's they, they really technologically, you know, they there's not a lot there there. You don't you don't think of, you know, buying Russian electronics or anything. You no. Know? And their economy overall is about the size of Italy's. Right. I mean, yeah, it's not. It's you know it's it's basically us and China if we're going to talk about economic dominance in the 20, 21st century. Yep. Uh, but yeah, you raised uh, Reagan. I think my favorite quote by him about the uh, the cold, you know the bringing to an end the Cold War is they said you know well what's your rationale how do you view it he goes I view it very simply we win they lose. <laughs> attractive way of looking at things I think exactly and I think that the hope is again I think we've had this conversation before again I think the problem with the United States uh, you know as a as a government um, is that we we have this very uh, kind of uh, limited attention span yeah and we think okay we go in you, you show people you know what what a great liberal democracy is like and everybody's going to love it yeah and uh, that's not always that's not always the case and i think we thought and i think we still do it's a rather naive thing i mean it's yes. it's a it's it's a it's a very i think lovely and uh um honorable uh, thought but it's really quite naive yep to think that okay, the Chinese once they see that uh, you know free market economy actually you know that the rising tide lifts all boats, everybody gets better. You know, it's it's a very naive outlook, as uh, as as positive as an outlook as it may be. Yep. Hey, before we run out of time, I want to get your assessment of where you think this is going to go. I know it seems really chaotic now, and it's mm -hmm. hard to judge, but given what you know about the character of the Ukrainian people and uh, what you've seen of Zelensky, who seems like a yeah becoming a kind of a folk hero now in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. How do you think it's going to end up? I mean, we, you know, I've seen reports today saying that some some people in the State Department think this could go on for years. I think that's probably where it's going to go. If Putin really? doesn't, if, if yes, if Putin does not uh, does not realize that he's made a mistake, which I'm not sure he can do at this point in time. I'm not sure either side can back down at this point in time. Um, but I, I, the, the, I don't think the Ukrainians will ever capitulate. I mean, they, they strove for years to get out of the shadow of the, of the Russians and the Soviet Union. Um, you know, they, it, it's just, it's not, I, I don't think it's in their, I don't think it's in their nature. I mean, there's yeah. a small group of people there who are, you know, very Russian oriented, Russia. but it's a, it's yeah. a minority. It's, yeah. it's, it's a definite minority. Well, the scary so, thing is if, if Putin thinks he's not winning, he might get even more desperate and try something really crazy. Well, that's the problem, I think. And unless uh, unless something is going on inside the Kremlin, because uh, I think people are only going to follow him so far. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this gets uh, you know. The, again, there's there's a there's a ton of Russians who who live in Ukraine, right? Uh, and who enjoy living in Ukraine. They actually like the Ukrainians. You know, they have family. There's a, again, there's so much close attachment between the two the, between the two countries that I think there's a, I think there's potentially a problem internally for Putin uh, if if this continues. If he doesn't win, if if the if the Ukrainians don't capitulate, if they keep fighting, 
uh, he's the guy who really, I think, is is uh, has got to be worried because I think internally they can't they can't. I mean, they you know they have a food is is not you know it's I don't want to say it's scarce because I don't think it is scarce, but you know it, it's not easy. It's not the easiest thing to come by in in Russia. That's not, not it never has been and it may never will be yeah. um, because they're they're focused their priorities on on other things. Um, so I think at some point in time, even when, again, when you have, again, it's St. Petersburg, so it's pretty, it's a pretty liberal area, but when you actually have, have almost, you know, a thousand, 2000 people protesting Putin yeah. in St. Petersburg. Yeah. And of, course, and of course, to make a change in leadership, uh, one of the positive things, I guess, in the, in, in Russia is you don't need an election to get rid of Putin. No, you, <laughs> no, you do not. Two very powerful people who say, step aside. That's um, it. You're done. Well, I don't, you know, we're running into our, uh, our uh, limit here uh, from the z- wonderful Zoom people. Um, so I didn't want to end this without uh, doing, giving a shout out to one of our viewers and listeners who I know is watching from Florida. It's a former colleague of ours, Dave, Jim Murphy. And I want to say hi to him and thank him for watching. And I also, if we in, unintentionally offended him in any way in a previous podcast i want to apologize for that because we did not intend that correct dave absolutely and yeah. and uh the only thing is that i thought jim knew us well enough to know that we're we're snarky to everybody <laughs> yes. so i think he really does even even yeah. to each other so yes. yeah no we love jim murphy yes, jim murphy did a did a, a you know wonderful things for the for the company that we work for so basically um, saved us a couple of times yep there you go there yep. you go i doubt about it well, I think uh, I think well, I think we're running up against it. So I, I want to thank you very much, Mr. Williams, for participating again in your at your fifty percent level here on our podcasts. Thank you very much. Um, and, and I want to um, thank you. I should uh, let people know that you actually have paid me to do this with this uh, fifty thousand <laughs> Rivnia note from the Ukraine that I brought back. This is worth about twenty five cents. It's fifty thousand oh. Rivnia. Um, oh. And uh, I am accepting new Ukrainian money. <laughs> this is this is uh, this is a one dollar Britannia. Wonderful! Uh, is so that thank you. I, who is that? I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, that's that's probably. I don't know who that is. Um, well, I, I was going to know, Dave. I was going to pay you in Russian rubles because they're worth like uh, less than a penny now. I think. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So Thanks well, I amazing. accept any kind of odd currency. Ernie, yes. is, that's worthless. <laughs> it's good. Well, uh, this was very enlightening, um, and particularly in the midst of this kind of fog of war, it was interesting to get your insights uh, into what's going on over there and your experiences, so I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. Thank when, you, Ernie. Anyway. Appreciate Always happy to come on and chat with you. It's always, always a good time. I'm sure we'll do it again. And uh, to all of our listeners and viewers, I hope you enjoyed our discussion and hope you'll join us for our next episode of The Polling Station. This is Ernie Picopoulos of Polity Research. So long.